I have a title for today's sermon. The things you can get away with saying in a psalm is the title. I'm very pleased with that, in case you didn't notice that. So I was in San Antonio last week with my Episcopal wife, Julia, at the Festival of Homiletics. I look at our Methodist minister here. Uh, the word homily, homiletics, homily, that's what Episcopals call a sermon. And so I know preachers preaching to preachers uh, all day, sometimes about preaching. Um, what else do I do for fun? Uh, <laughs> but, but even, I was actually looking forward to it. But when I arrived at the venue, at the conference center, I was feeling all like out of sorts and funky and I couldn't put my finger out it. And then I realized, oh, I've been here before. I've been in this very place before at big pastor conferences of my previous denomination back when I was a beloved national leader. And I was having all these feelings. Oh my Lord, I was having feelings. The whole week I was having feelings. And these are embarrassing feelings I was having, like how much I liked being liked, um, how much I liked being accepted and known by a big group of people, how much I love belonging to this big, big thing, this tribe kind of unit, um, how much I like people saying hi to me, asking me questions young pastors asking me questions like I could tell them something worthwhile. Can we catch lunch tomorrow? And Gosh, I'm booked, but you know, maybe a really early breakfast because I got, you know, whatever. But now it's 2017. I'm in the same building. Actually, there were two different buildings that this conference was held in. Both of them had been at previous conferences. I'm triggering all these old memories, but I'm, uh, the place is stacked with people that I don't know and who don't know me. In four days, no one asked me a single question except the wait staff, more water. Is it that? And that, that, it got to the point where that felt good. That felt good. <laughs> and I realized, oh, this is what women feel like most of the time in male-dominated space. And I'm like, oh, this is a horrible experience towards me. Um, you know how you don't feel very American, um, if you are American, until you go to the UK and then you're whistling Yankee Doodle Dandy all the time? So I was in, in the UK shortly after 9-11, and I was like bursting with uh, patriotism that I didn't even know I had. And now at the Festival of Homiletics, I'm feeling so very non-denominational. You know, I, I felt so non-denominational around all those mainline denominational people who call themselves clergy. Oh my Lord. And I was missing my old non-denomination. So what was going on with me? Well, you know, we're evolved to be part of tribes, meaning we're evolved to be part of bigger units than just households or, or even clans. Our success as a species is that we can be part of like groups of like 100, 150, you think of as, as tribes. And we bond with these larger tribal entities as if our well-being depends on it because for our ancestors it absolutely did. And that bonding is part of our identity formation. So our sense of self comes in tribal flavors. So at the festival of how many grits, man, was I 
I was like in a very judging space. Like everything they were doing was just annoying the daylights out of me. Just it was a, little things like I, I don't know everything. Um, the clerical vestments booth uh, in the bookstore where you can buy overpriced religious gear and and oh my lord and get a grip. I was just like, uh, and then you feel bad about feeling so bad and you're like you hate yourself and it was I was in a bad space at the last session of the festival I was able to name my funk finally the theme of the last session uh, of the festival was refugees so uh, persons who are displaced from their homeland and the uh, uh, lead speaker opened by reading um, one of the exile psalms from the people of Israel psalm 137. You may recognize it if you remember that old 70s musical Godspell, but I'm using the Robert Alter translation, so it'll be a little different. Um, By Babylon's streams, there we sat. Oh, we wept when we were called Zion. On the poplars there, we hung up our lyre, for there our captors had asked us words of songs, and our plunderers, rejoicing, sing us from Zion songs. How can we sing a song of the Lord on foreign soil? Should I forget you, Jerusalem? May my right hand wither. May my tongue cleave to my palate. If I do not recall you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my chief joy. So the Jewish um, refugees in Babylon have been forcibly deported to Babylon. And their captors now want a little entertainment from these new Jewish refugees. And so they're like, sing us some of your songs. Sing us some of your Zion songs. But to, to the Jewish refugees, these aren't like nationalist ditty songs. These are the Lord's songs. And, and these are the songs they sing in the temple. But the temple doesn't exist anymore. The week before this conference, I, uh, Robin... Um, uh, put me on to uh, dictionary.com. You can sign up for a daily word. I like words. So I signed up for, I think Robin sent me a, a cool word, and I signed up for the word. And on May 11th, the word was sodada. 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 It's actually S A U D A D E, but it's pronounced sodada. And it's an intense emotional state of melancholic longing for an absent person or thing. Moreover, it often carries a repressed knowledge that the object of longing might never return. Oh, some of you social workers are kind of like, I'm getting that. You know, you, when you carry a repressed knowledge that's like, Oh, that's a complicated feeling, and that's a, that's a big word. That's why I like it so much, so dada. And that's what it was. I, was. I was in a state of so dada. After this, you know, hasty, involuntary exit from my familiar religious homeland, here I was with these nice people. Oh, they were so nice. They were like chronically nice. They were annoyingly nice people. I, I, was, I was more welcome with these nice people than with my own peeps that I used to be uh, tight with. But, but these nice people did not feel like my people. Um, you know, you can have sodada for lots of different things. Um, but intense sodada 
is often something you have over like a lost homeland, um, a lost family connection, a lost uh, loved one, a lost uh, ethnic group experience, a lost religious tribe maybe. And so I'm not just talking about me now. Um, I'm talking about all of us. More or less, we, we can dip in and out of sodada. Uh, you know, with such high mobility rates in the modern world, uh, big cities, uh, especially university towns, especially are like a, a gathering place of displaced persons. That's what a modern city really is. In Hebrew, where it says, if I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand wither. The word that's translated wither is actually forget. If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget. It, it, like if you forget to use something long enough, it withers. That's the idea here. Um, you know, if you're grieving uh, the loss of a dear loved one, uh, there will come a day when you have a hard time picturing your lost loved one in your mind without the aid of a photograph and you have a panicky feeling when that day comes um, like oh my god if I forget them I'm I'm forgetting part of me you, you know if you can't worship God in your native tongue you can feel like you're in danger of forgetting a part of this God that you used to know in a different language and you, you see why it's so dada it runs so deep in us so, you know, if you're friends with someone who is missing someone or is displaced for something, uh, don't be afraid to ask that friend about whatever it is. Uh, the loved one, uh, the, the lost community, the, the lost family, the homeland. Because the, the pain for people who are experiencing sodada is not remembering. The pain is actually in the forgetting. So when we're able to share these things with each other, it's a way of holding the treasured memories together with others. Memory is communal as, as, as much as it is individual. Um, so when you're feeling sodada, intense melancholic longing over the absence of someone or something, it's, it's so important to like express it, to put it into words. I was reading this uh, research recently that shows that actually if you have more specific words for more feelings, you process your feelings better. Like it actually helps to have a lot of different words for feelings. So, you know, if you say like at the beginning of that conference, all I, all I could say was, I, I just feel funky. I feel out of sorts. It, that's not nearly as helpful to you in processing your emotion as saying something more specific like I'm lonely or I'm angry. And, and, and it often helps to put that, in, that feeling into a word and then share it with someone else. It just helps us to carry, manage all the emotion that we carry every day to not just carry it in total isolation from others. So over the past five years, I experienced a lot of displacement. won't bore you with the details. But the other day, I saw Jen Nelson. Jen's not here uh, at the Sharks game. The Sharks is the new hot team uh, in the area, the Blue Ocean Sharks. I think this was game two. Didn't have such a good outing on game two. But I saw Jen Nelson at the Sharks game. And um, uh, Jen is a teacher. And she knows my daughter, uh, Grace. I think Jen was probably Grace's Sunday school teacher uh, when Grace was, was little. 
And, and Jen asked me about grace. And I told, and I was, oh, this is a chance for me to brag about grace. I'd just been to D.C. I'd been in Grace's classroom, and we had like five minutes talking about, about it just, oh, it felt so good to me. Uh, when I'm with Julia's friends, who, who, and they share this rich history together, because she has all these friends who she's known for like years and years and years in one place. And when I'm with Julia's friends, um, it's so helpful when one of her friends will like ask me about like some part of my life that's, you know, largely invisible to them. When we feel heard by others, we feel heard by God. Um, I actually feel the same way when someone remembers my late wife, you know, it's just, the, it's just the greatest thing when someone mentions her name or, you know, something triggers a memory of her and I'm able to share that. Sudada, an intense emotional state of melancholic longing for an absent person or thing. Moreover, it often carries a repressed knowledge that the object of longing might never return. So just to name something, um, we don't share an equal experience or an equal sense of uh, this in, in our blue ocean space that we're carving out. I mean, you know, how could we possibly? Um, some of us are here because we went through our own traumatic departure from faith communities or even families um, on our way here. Uh, some of us are geographically Displaced, like our homelands, our native languages where they're spoken are far away from here. Uh, the songs we sing may not be your first, like, worship language. And they be like, like nice songs, but they're just not my songs. The people around us, many of us, may not look like our people. So we all have different experiences of this when we come together in a space like this. Um, so you can really appreciate um, your new setting and feel intense longing for what's absent, right? So just because you're feeling that intense longing for what you're missing doesn't mean you're not appreciating your new setting. Um, Babylon was like the jewel of Mesopotamia. They were in Babylon. It was like they went to Manhattan from Jerusalem. Um, but it wasn't Jerusalem. Uh, the prophet uh, Jeremiah, I think it was when, when the um, deportation was happening, I think Jeremiah was going out with the exiles. And he told the exiles, settle down and plant gardens and make a home there in Babylon and pray for the peace of Babylon. Which, you know, we hear that, sounds easy to us, but we can't appreciate how foreign the land felt to them and how hard that was for them. Uh, the Jews in Babylon had been brutally deported, but actually once they settled, they, they did pretty well in Babylon. It was, it was only like the leadership class of the Jews that were deported to Babylon, like the common people, the people of the land as they were called, were left behind, but the, the educated leading Jews were, had been selected for deportation, and they were uh, mostly allowed to live in, in one place, and to maintain their traditions. And scholars think that that's actually, it was in Babylon that uh, what we now call Judaism began to take shape before it was just like Israelite religion. It became Judaism in Babylon. The Torah, the, the Hebrew Bible took shape 
in Babylon, not in Israel before the Babylonian exile. Synagogue worship started in Babylon. It wasn't happening back home. And synagogue worship, there was no temple, so they gathered in congregations, synagogues. That's what Judaism is today, synagogue worship. So in the grand scheme, the Babylonian exile accelerated the Jews becoming the Jews. Um, it transformed them from, from being like a semi-nomadic tribe in a backwater into people with like an outsized impact on global culture that is felt to this day. So obviously God was working something out. God was redeeming this pain they were experiencing, but they couldn't see that at the time. They were in the middle of the story, not at the end of the story. They could see it through like a misty faith uh, in one of the exile psalms, I think it's in the 120s, uh, they can only imagine themselves feeling better. It's a very poignant psalm. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Only they were actually just dreaming it. They weren't, ha it wasn't happening. Our mouths were filled with laughter. And then in the middle of the psalm, it goes, restore our fortunes, O Lord. So it's clear they haven't, haven't gotten back there yet. They're just daydreaming about it. So back to the festival. When I heard the, um, the final speaker in that final session read Psalm 131, I noticed he didn't include the last lines of the psalm. And because I was in that funky, feisty, displaced mood, I almost stood up in the crowd and yelled, read the last part, it's important. But I thought better of it. Maybe because Julia, my Episcopal priest wife, who felt very comfortable in the setting and had a lot of friends there, <laughs> was sitting right next to me. Impulse control is a good thing sometimes. The last lines of the psalm, Psalm 137. Recall, O Lord, the, remember the Edomites on the day of Jerusalem, on the day Jerusalem was destroyed. Remember, the, O Lord, the Edomites saying, raise it, raise it to the foundations, destroy it, bring it down. So the Edomites were descendants of Esau. Esau, in the book of Genesis, was the rival brother to Jacob. Jacob became Israel. The tribes of Jacob became Israel. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. So the Arab nations and by extension many Muslims today would claim descent from Abraham, it's an Abrahamic faith, through Esau, not Jacob. So this is a rivalry, this is a tension with long legs, and we see it in the psalm because the Edomites were local, uh, non-Jewish local people in Jerusalem who when the Babylonian hordes came down, descended on Jerusalem, they were cheering them on. And they were saying, burn it down, their temple, burn it down. King Herod is so hated in the New Testament because he was half Jewish and half Edomite. So the, the Roman power put a half Edomite as the king of the Jews. And that, just, that was just grinding teeth of the Jewish people. So that's a thing, isn't it? You know, sometimes we have misfortunes or we have losses that other people delight in I told you so you know see you got what you had coming that is that is so infuriating isn't it when someone's rejoicing at something that is a loss or a sorrow for you now have you noticed that sometimes 
when you give voice to your anger, it triggers a passing gear that you didn't think your transmission had. And you find yourself venting stuff you didn't know you had in you. Well, that happened in this psalm for these displaced people in Babylon. The last line of this psalm, what is it? Daughter of Babylon, the despoiler, happy who pays you back in kind for what you did to us. Happy who seizes and smashes your infants against the rock. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, you, you read the beginning of that psalm. It's a song in the musical Godspell. By the willows there, we hung up our lyres. Tiny Tim could sing that song, you know. And this is how it ends. Happy who seizes and smashes your infants against the rock. Now you know why the speaker pulled his punch. <laughs> and didn't read the end of the psalm at the festival of homiletics in San Antonio. It was too much for him. It was too much for the crowd. You would have had to do a whole nother sermon just to unpack that last line. But it was not too much for the God who heard the psalm in the first place. So I want to read you the uh, Robert Alter commentary, just a brief thing on this line. Robert Alter is a great uh, Jewish scholar, and I think it's, Probably best to leave the commenting to a, to a Jew on a psalm like this. Um, he's fantastic. But about this line, happy uh, who seizes and smashes your infants against the rock. Um, no moral justification can be offered for this notorious concluding line. It's like, okay, thank you. <laughs> All one can do is to recall the background of outraged feeling that triggers the conclusion. The Babylonians have laid waste to Jerusalem, exiled much of its population, looted and massacred. The powerless captives ordered, perhaps mockingly, to sing their Zion songs, respond instead with a lament that is not really a song and ends with this blood-curdling curse pronounced on their captors who fortunately do not understand the Hebrew in which it is pronounced. <laughs> That's pretty sweet, isn't it? <laughs> Like, that's pretty sweet. Um, so, um, the fact that this embarrassing uh, final line of the psalm hasn't been edited out of the book of Psalms tells us something. It tells us some real important things. It tells us something about ourselves. You know, if, if you are feeling displaced, if you are having that displaced person experience especially in an intense displaced person experience hello don't be surprised if intense anger anger that when it comes out looks very much like hatred comes pouring out of you every now and again especially if it's been locked up inside of you for a while and you know for the rest of us let people have their anger for heaven's sake. Let people have their anger. You know, minority people often get punished in majority culture for their anger because the majority people are shocked by it. If, if you haven't seen, uh, check it out, uh, Luther Obama's anger translator. Uh, you, you know, at the White House Correspondents' Dinner when Keegan-Michael Key and Obama get up there. 
oh, I miss that man. Let me just say I miss that man. I miss him so bad. Oh. You know, injustice breeds outrage as surely as a hammer strike on your thumb releases an expletive, uh, which is, by the way, uh, when you say the expletive, uh, studies have shown <laughs> that it, the pain is released faster through the expletive. So there's a neurological function to the expletive. How's that for the ultimate mansplaining right there? I love that. That's recent research, people. You got it now fresh. Um, this is a God who lets them give voice to their pain. You know, that's, that's what the psalmist telling us. It's, it's, it tells us something about our own pain, what it's like, stuff that comes out that we don't even realize is there. But even more than that, it tells us something about the God they're praying to. You know, in the, in the uh, movies, they talk about the, um, the reaction shot, right? There's something really dramatic happening, and the director doesn't want to show it by showing the action directly, directly so they show the reaction shot. And, you know, Hitchcock was great on the reaction shot. So the Psalms are like the reaction shot. And, and we see the psalmist, we hear the psalmist, and then we think, well, what kind of God are they praying to that they feel this kind of freedom to pray like that? And I'd say this is a God who lets them give voice to their pain. Uh, my mother of blessed memory uh, was not a cusser. That's saying it mildly. At, I think it's age eight. I've told this story before. I'm going to tell it again. If there's anyone young, please uh, cover your ears. Pastor Ken's going to say a bad word. At age eight, Jimmy Hahn startled me in my backyard, 20309 Gilchrist, Detroit, by shooting water from a hose in my face at close range with that sprayer sent to the intense setting. And I screamed at him, God damn you, Jimmy Hahn! And I felt instantaneous, the deepest remorse. I had ever felt up to that point in my short life. I thought I had literally damned Jimmy Hahn to hell. <laughs> like I, was, I guess I was still in that magical thinking, and I thought, oh, what have I done? I ran to my mother sobbing. I never did this. I ran to my mother sobbing in a state of the guiltiest repentance. And she said, don't worry, he hosed you in the face. You were mad, I would be too. And at that moment, my mother was like, I have never felt grace like this before. I have never felt forgiveness. I am so shocked. I'm so surprised. I was feeling bad for being mad. And the feeling bad was worse than the feeling mad had been. And my mother just straightened that out for me by her non-anxious response to my being mad. And I'm like, thank you, Blanche Wilson. But why wouldn't somebody in the long transmission chain of Jewish scribes, you know, we only have the Hebrew Bible because there were these men who, you know, they would write, write it down. They would make copies and they would spread it. And there weren't that many copies. 
And so in order to keep them going there, it had to be these guys writing these things down and carefully doing it and praying it while they're doing it. And so there would be a copy for the succeeding generations. That's a lot of like, you know, that's a long chain of transmission where it would have been the easiest thing in the world to edit out this line. And there's, you know, lots of indications in the Bible that, that redactors and editors and that there were little changes and bigger changes and some manuscripts would include, you know, some lines and other manuscripts wouldn't. But with this psalm, it's intact, like start to finish. Why wouldn't at least one of those guys somewhere in the chain of transmission just say, you know, this would make such a good Hallmark card without this last line. Why don't we just make some money off this sucker? Um, but they didn't. And so, um, because the God they were coming to know was a God who let them give voice without condemnation, without even censorship, to their pain and that that felt to them like a important aspect of this God that they were getting to know and so I'd say that makes this the best worst line in all of the Psalms um, for what it tells us about the God they brought with them into exile this God lets them give full voice to their pain so um, my phone is ringing. It's very distracting. It just stopped. I'm better. Um, <laughs> I had half a thought to answer it, but I don't. My, my friend, uh, Edie Wasink, um, at, uh, she's the lead pastor at the um, Sanctuary Church in Iowa City. It's part of the Blue Ocean Network. Uh, we had an 80 here about a year ago. My friend, Edie Wasink, has a phrase that she uses in her personal meditation, her quiet time. And the phrase is, all of me to all of you. All of you, meaning, you know, God. So if you know Adi, Adi is a person of intense feeling and the ability to express her intense feeling. She's Jewish, and she grew up in, in uh, Skokie, Illinois. She's uh, a little bit younger than me. Uh, and she grew up in a community of uh, Holocaust survivors. So, like, most of the people she knew had, had uh, numbers tattooed on their arms. And she absorbed, um, you know, a lot of trauma growing up in that, in that community around those traumatized people. Adi is one of the most emotionally connected, emotionally intelligent, and emotionally considerate people I know. Uh, she did not get that way by internalizing and bottling up the intense feeling that she absorbed just growing up in that traumatized community. She got that way by interacting with, well, the, the Jewish God. She got to know the Jewish God before whom she didn't have to censor herself. Um, and, and that posture is summed up in her little meditation phrase that she uses from time to time. All of me to all of you. To quote Adi directly about what that phrase means to her, it just means the complexities that are me and the beyond mystery of God. It's like, you know, there's a sense in which we know God, but then the closer we get to God, you know, God is love, God is this, that, but then the closer we get to God, we get into the, what they call the cloud of unknowing, and then we realize we don't know diddly squat, and that we're just aware of, oh gosh, this is... Uh, 
someone, something, I, I don't know. It's the, like the unknownness of God when we get closer sometimes. And this is her way of just saying the all of me to um, the all of you, whatever that is. So let's, maybe we could use that for our uh, reflection time uh, today. Um, and we'll take a two or three minutes and I'll just, uh, we'll do this in like maybe two, two or three little minute long chunks. Um, and so uh, if, you, if you're new here, the, just the way to participate in this if you want um, is to just make yourself relaxed and comfortable in your seat there. Um, maybe start by just uh, breathing calmly. Um, paying attention to your breath is one simple way to uh, quiet the din in your head. Um, crazy thoughts that bounce around all the time. Uh, and we'll be, we'll be quiet for a moment. And just use this, use 80's little uh, meditation prayer for a minute and see how it lands. All of me to all of you. All of me to all of you. And I will just adapt that a little bit and make it, you have ears to hear my pain. Just use that as a meditative phrase if you want to. You have ears to hear my pain. And then we'll just close by maybe turning that into a couple of petitions. Um, you have ears to hear my pain. Give me a voice to speak it. And give me ears to hear the pain of someone who just needs me to listen. Add those petitions to your prayer if you like. Give me ears. Give me a voice to speak it and give me ears to hear the pain of someone who just needs me to listen.
All right. You can come out of your meditative stupor now.